And if you're sticking around, you can turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're looking at some pretty important parts of the Bible. Not that there's unimportant parts, but some are more important than others. And this part's super important. So, <clears throat> But I want you to turn to actually John's Gospel first. So stick something here because we're coming right back. But I want you to go to John's Gospel, chapter 3. Okay, John chapter 3. There's a wonderful and very well-known conversation in the gospel between Jesus and this Pharisee named Nicodemus. Most of you know that story. Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus by night and he begins the conversation by praising Jesus. Now it might be flattery but actually I don't think it is just flattery. He says, Rabbi we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus said, thank you very much. What's on your mind? <laughs> no, he doesn't actually say that. Uh, there might be more small talk in this conversation than, than is recorded, obviously. But um, John has this rather surprising response from Jesus to uh, what Nicodemus said. So he says, no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And we know you've come from God. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 3, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So last week in, in 1 John chapter 2, we talked about what might be called tests of authenticity with regard to the validity of a person's profession that they're a follower of Christ. We talked about that idea. So if we're thinking in terms of tests of authenticity, then if this is true right here, as Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, then the, the question obviously is, is there a way to determine if one is born again? And if you continue with the conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, as clear as Jesus is that the new birth is absolutely essential for you to see the kingdom of God, he is equally clear that this new birth is in the realm of unseen things. The new birth is not visible. When Nicodemus asks, he goes, well, how can a person be born again? Go through this whole birth process when you're old and all that. He, he's just totally limited thinking there with physical birth he's thinking about. So in verse 7, Jesus says, do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who was born of the Spirit. So it's a work of the Spirit, this new birth, and it's like the wind. You don't see wind. You see its effects, right? I mean, you can see the rustling of the leaves and the trees. You can see dust blowing across the road in our community. <laughs> you can see tumbleweeds dancing through your yard. That's the effect of the wind, but you can't actually see the wind. And it's that way with people. You see the new birth by the effects that it creates in a life. You see it in the way people speak and the things that they love and the way they approach problems in life. You see it in humility before God. There's all kinds of aspects of that you can see. And it might take time because the Spirit labors with us in sanctification and growth. The Spirit changes us, but it happens for some of us it happens faster than other people but it's a struggle for all of us to 
reach those levels. So, um, but John, in 1 John, you can start heading that way now. When John starts talking about these tests, these tests of authenticity in, in 1 John chapter 2, he is helping this church, these confused believers, he's helping them understand why some of them had abandoned Christ and gone and joined a cult. And if some people walk away, then if they literally walk away, then that unseen work of the Spirit wasn't real. But they seemed real. And they talked our language and they were part of our fellowship and all of that. So although you would hope it would be really easy to tell who is of the Spirit, who's been born again of the Spirit, and who isn't, it's not always easy to tell. It's just not. We cannot read people's hearts and most of all, well, I think we just want to think the best about everybody. So if they're pretty much towing the line, using our language and talking about things the way we do, the, um, we just assume. But these tests are here for a reason, and the tests are real. The first test we looked at last time, um, some call the moral test. I think I prefer calling it the obedience test. If you recall, John started with commandment keeping in verse 3 of chapter 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. That's like as clear as you can be. It's extraordinarily clear. But John doesn't want to limit it to just certain specific commandments. So in verse 5 he really emphasizes the motive of commandment keeping, why we keep commandments, which is love for God. So verse 5, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. So we obey because we love God. And having established the right motive, then he describes the Christian walk in terms that really only people that love Jesus can really understand. In the middle of verse 5 he says, by this we know that we are in him. Here's how we know. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. He uses a really important word there. A word that's been dropped from our culture. Ought. Ought. You ought to be this way. Do you know what this uh, keeping of God's word ought to look like? It ought to look like Jesus. That's what it ought to look like. We ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. So that's the first test. Okay, that was last week. Now we're moving to the second test. Some call it the social test. I would call it the love test. Because in verse 3 through 6, the focus is Godward, about loving God and obeying God. But in verses 7 through 11, our text today, where it's much more focused on here and horizontal, you know, human to human, especially relationships between believers in a fellowship. It's about Christian love, agape love, and just as verse 5 is about love for God, this section is about love for each other. So love God, love one another, right? So together, these, these two tests just happen to perfectly fit the two tables of the law. Remember, Moses carried two tablets down. And there's four on one side and six on the other. And the first four are all about our relationship to God. And the other six are all about our relationship with each other, right? So the first four commandments, the last six commandments, the last six are all about how we treat human beings. And those two sections or tablets or any way you want to say it, they perfectly fit the greatest commandment that 
Jesus was asked about and the answer he gave with regard to that, right? What's the greatest commandment? Well, the greatest commandment is from Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second, and, and this, this is the great and foremost commandment, and the second is, and you all know, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, God and one another. Same thing. On these two commandments, Jesus said, depend the whole law and the prophets. So all of the commandments regarding our relationship to God and other people, the commandments just give definition to love. They're, they're what love looks like. So if you're keeping those commandments, people can see that love in you because you'll be acting a certain way. And that's why John starts this new section, so we're starting at verse 7 through 11 here, by, by talking about an old commandment and a new commandment. So the second commandment, the second greatest commandment that Jesus gave, love your neighbor as yourself, is the theme of this part of John's letter here. Okay? And I gotta say, verse 7 and 8, isolated, these words seem a little bit mysterious, but the context, they become very clear in a second. Okay? So, so he says, Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Kind of think about those verses a little bit. Old and new? Well, we're going to see how the old and new are essentially one from what he goes on to say here. There is one governing principle that encompasses everything Jesus and his apostles tell us to do as followers of Christ in relationship to each other. And he remembers well, I mean, he was there when Jesus gave that great summation of the law, the one commandment towards God and, the, and then the second commandment towards our fellow men. He was there. So, so the first test is Godward. This test is manward. And he writes as though they know this, right? He's saying, it's, you, you already have heard this. This isn't new, what I'm going to share with you. Because it's foundational stuff. They've known it from the beginning, he says. The beginning of what? Well, he doesn't say that either. He's assuming they know that. So, beginning of their Christian walk, the beginning of their having the word of God, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, all of those could be true about that. Maybe he's reaching all the way back to the beginning of God's word and the law of Moses because that's where that actually comes from. The law which was given to govern his covenant people. The old law was part of a, this particular old law, this, the second greatest commandment according to Jesus, that particular law comes in Leviticus chapter 19 in, in a series of exhortations concerning evil things that people do to each other. It's all there in Leviticus 19. And when you get to the end of those exhortations in Leviticus 19.17, Moses says, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the son of your people, but, and here it comes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So love your neighbor as yourself. It's right there in the law of Moses. But it, it's not hidden in there exactly. But it's not like real obvious. It's just sort of a concluding thought about all these other commandments about not hurting people or hating people and things like that. 
It's not like the greatest commandment. I mean, the greatest commandment just leaps at you in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. I mean, you, they're calling you to this. The great commandment. And that's the most famous thing every Jew knows, that verse, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Very prominent. It's the most important thing. Every good thing that men do is going to flow from that commandment being first and foremost in our hearts and in our lives. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But Jesus took out of a relatively buried place out of Leviticus chapter 19 in the midst of all these other laws. Jesus took and elevated this one law from Leviticus to the status of the second greatest commandment, the second most important thing you need to do, to love your neighbor as yourself. So the Old Testament emphasizes, if you read through the whole Old Testament, which we've been doing in our Through the Bible in a Year group, but if you do that, you just constantly see the refrain of justice and righteousness. That's your obligation to man, to be just and righteous. But Jesus went to motive. What should drive justice and righteousness it's love you shall love your neighbor as yourself that's why he took that out and elevated it to a place of great prominence so John remembered Jesus words and recorded Jesus words at the last supper John chapter 13 verse 34 Jesus spoke about a new commandment he called it a new commandment a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well now what makes this a new commandment? Because it's the same commandment as Leviticus. It's an old commandment. Why is he calling it a new commandment? I think I know. It's the new context that's being given here. In Leviticus, it's pretty much love your neighbor, don't do anything wrong to him. That's really what Leviticus 19 is saying. But Jesus said, love one another, and then he said this, love one another even as I have loved you. Which is way different than Jesus not stealing from Thomas or... Um, yelling at Peter or beating up Matthew. It's, it's way different than that, isn't it? Very different than that. Love one another as I have loved you raises love to heights that before the coming of Christ, human beings couldn't even imagine because there was never anybody like Jesus before. So now he's saying what that means is how I live. And you've got to do that. You've got to treat people the way you've seen me treat people all through my ministry. Because Jesus' love was perfect. And it was complete. And it was self-giving. And it was self-sacrificing. It motivated all of his acts of compassion and mercy. Even, even his rebukes were motivated by love. There's never been a person like him perfectly embodying love as God intends for humanity. So verse 8 tells us this new commandment is, this is amazing what John says, it's true in him and he says, and in you. It's true in him and in you. That's an incredible compliment 
to the Christians in Asia Minor that he's writing to. John is saying they have followed Jesus in his love sufficiently for John to say that what is true about Jesus is true about them as well. Not perfect, not like him completely, but enough that it's noticeable. They were actually doing it. You don't have to walk on water or raise the dead to walk as Jesus did. You just have to love people like he did, self-sacrificially, laying down your life for other people, people the world deems unworthy. Our Christian life should always aim to that. The last part of verse 8 confirms that John believes this love is normal Christianity. He says because the darkness is passing away and the, the true light is already shining. So it shines in the word of God and it shines in us. This true light. And every time somebody embraces Jesus and starts to walk as he walked, the world gets just a little bit brighter. Jesus told his followers in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. And it's true. If we're faithful, especially faithful to Christ-like love, if we walk as he did, the true light is shining wherever Christ is known. And he is known at some level in most of the world. The knowledge of him will continue to grow because Christianity is spreading everywhere. And every time somebody comes to him and they're born again and their life begins to change, the light becomes a little brighter. And when Jesus comes back, the darkness is going to be dispelled. There won't be darkness. For now the darkness is very real and very widespread and it feels like it's growing too. But it's not going to last. It's not going to last. Okay, look at verse 9. Now we come to the actual dividing line. The test. So now notice in verses 9 through 11 the word darkness becomes very prominent here. Used four times. Because John wants to make sure that you and I know that darkness is present any place or any time when love is absent. There's darkness there where love is not expressed. In verse 4, the question was, back up in verse 4, the question was, does this individual know God? And he says, he says he knows God, but verse 4 it says he does not keep his commandments. Now here, it's a very similar issue with a different emphasis. In verse 4, it was knowing God. Here in verse 9, the claim is, I am in the light. I am in the light. I have the light of Christ. So verse 9, the one who says he is in the light yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. No matter what he or she says, no matter what they say, a hateful man or woman is in darkness. And to profess Christ without love toward people means you're in darkness until now. That's what that means. You know, Paul in the book of Colossians says, God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Hate is a sign that you have not been rescued. It's a sign that you're still in the domain of darkness. No transference has taken place. You know, in 1 Corinthians 13, what we call, what we call that chapter? The love chapter, right? 
Paul describes Christian love there and the very first thing he says is love is patient. Love is kind. And all of that. Never forget how that chapter actually began. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongue of men and angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So I can be super gifted and do all sorts of super good works but if love isn't driving me, if compassion isn't the beat of my heart, I'm not what I profess to be. It's just that simple. Does this mean that Christian loves perfectly? Of course not. We're all sinners, aren't we? We've already talked about that in this book. But oh, if we hate, if we hate, if we despise other people like they're lower than us, unworthy of our love, then we're walking in darkness. We are literally walking in darkness, no matter what we say about ourselves. A Christian may hate, but the Holy Spirit's going to convict us that hatred is wrong. And we need to work on our hate. You know what the greatest tragedy in a church is? The worst thing that can happen in terms of moral failure in a church? It's to have contempt for a brother or a sister in Christ. To regard them with disdain. I'm, I'm sure I've done it. I'm sure I've done it. But I hope if another believer has wronged me or failed me that it would bring tears to me instead of derision. Mourning for their folly, their sin instead of a haughty disdain because I'm so much better than they are. Does that sound familiar? I'm in darkness if I stand on the thought that this person is undeserving of my love. I'm un I am undeserving of God's love. So how can I even think that? What am I saying? How can I hold myself over another person when Jesus has forgiven me so much? Jesus forgave people while he was being crucified. In fact, when Jesus rode that donkey into Jerusalem just the week before his death, Matthew 22:41 says when he approached Jerusalem he saw the city this unbelieving wicked city and he wept over it saying if you had known if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but now they've been hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. How did he say that? With tears. They were doomed. They were unrepentant. They were walking in darkness and rejected the light of the world and he wept for them. There's no smugness to it. What does John say? We ought to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now verse 10 makes it really clear who is walking in the light. The one who loves his brother abides in the light. And there's no cause for stumbling in him. 
Wow. So what's the definition, the apostolic definition in uh, a walking in or abiding in the light? What's this definition? It's loving each other. And look at that. He says there's no cause for stumbling. When you love like Jesus, all the moral considerations in life are accounted for. If you're walking in his love, everything else falls into place. Loving God means commandment keeping with a full heart. Loving your brother in the Lord means doing always what is best for that person. Always. That's what love wants. What is best for you? What is best for the one you love? Even hard to love people. Maybe especially hard to love people. That's what love wants. What is best. Paul in Romans chapter 13 verse 8 draws this connection between the commandments and Christ-like love, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. That's it. Love is the fulfillment of the law. So hate is the opposite of that. And John isn't going to move on without some words about hate. Now hate in the Bible, we always think of hate as, I hate you, you know, some kind of monstrous. No, hate can be a lot of different things in scripture. It's the, it's, it's the absence of love is the easiest way to say it. Hate doesn't have to be intense personal hatred, though that does appear sometimes, obviously, even among Christians. Sometimes we hate, right? But in a church setting, and John is writing to a church, he's addressing church people, people claiming to follow Christ. In a church setting, hate often shows up as contempt. You're not worth my time. You have too many problems. You don't grow fast enough. You haven't lived up to my expectations for you. And I want nothing to do with you. Jesus could have said that about, he could easily have said that about his three years with some pretty recalcitrant guys we call disciples. Man, you guys are horrible. He didn't do that. When Paul said love is patient, he wasn't kidding. And it's really interesting to me that that's first on the list. And of course, I right, I right away go to being at home and being impatient with my wife. But it's so much deeper than that. So much deeper than that. Love is patient. First thing on the list of love. One of the great joys of ministry is when you work with people over a long period of time and finally the lights come on. And often that person will look back over that time that you were working with them all that time through all these difficulties and say, thank you for being patient with me. <laughs> That's just love. It's just love. In verse 11, using once again simple language, John gives us what might be described as the psychology of sin. You could actually call it that. What's going on in the heart of a person that has this contempt or hatred for other people? Look what he says, verse 11. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not even know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see all that darkness? He's in the darkness. He walks in the darkness. The darkness has blinded his understanding. That sure sounds like it's describing an unbeliever. 
uh, a once-born man. Being in darkness is the natural state of a child of Adam. Walking in darkness means he lives and chooses entirely according to his fallen condition. He doesn't, he's not godly at all. Because he doesn't know God and he doesn't know where he's going. The darkness has blinded him. But this man John speaks about, he says he's in the light. I know Jesus. He's a Christian, he says. But he sure acts like he doesn't know God. He's walking in darkness, but doesn't know where he's walking to. He, he has no goal. His goal isn't godliness. What is it? Performance? Superiority? The professing Christian who hates his brother isn't manifesting anything like the light that came to him when he came to Christ, if he's real. So you have to wonder sometimes, is the light even there, right? Verse 11 can be viewed, I think, as a fuller explanation of the words Jesus used for mankind. What did Jesus say mankind is? Lost. It's lost. The lost are in darkness. The lost walk in darkness. The, the lost are blinded by the darkness. Their fallen nature. So of course they're lost. They're in darkness. But John says this professing Christian who hates his brother is like them. Is like them. Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. Hate is so completely contrary to everything following Jesus is all about. As a child of God walking in the light, we are here to be the hands and the feet and the lips of Jesus in order to seek and to save the lost. And to give ourselves up for that. If you really know Christ and are walking in the light, then you have this really clear purpose, this divine purpose. And as Christians, our primary purpose is to bring people, the gospel, the gospel of sinners reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. And then, for those who come to Christ, to disciple them, to help them learn how to walk with Christ, to encourage their growth, to stand alongside them, during all their struggles. And where does despising somebody fit with that purpose? Uh, nowhere I can think of. That's why we have to cast away from us contempt, derision, superiority. It has to go. And I know I've been there. I've done that. We must be what we are called to be, to walk in the manner that Christ walked with this incredible sacrificial love. That's what we're called to. He is our model. He is our pattern. Peter says we should walk in his steps, and his steps are always directed with love. Always. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving King, you have loved us so much, it's hard to fathom it. You've asked us to follow in your steps, to walk in the manner in which you walked. And John, your disciple, says we can do it. But you're going to have to fill us, Lord, with your love because we are, we are not able to. So humble us and remind us in every circumstance to be the instruments of our Savior's love. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, 
John is going to return to this theme of love and hate in chapter 3, but he's got some other things he wants to address before he comes back to it. So we'll look at that next time. Thank you.